This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by the Felder Report, my independent research newsletter. Uh, I have a free report that goes out Saturday mornings, um, and it's essentially just four or five things that I found during the course of my reading and research during the week that I think are special, that are important, that are must-read or must-see charts, anything like that. If you're interested in receiving something like this, like I said, it's free. Just go to thefelderreport.com, sign up right there on the homepage, and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Jonathan Tepper. And Jonathan is just a brilliant guy. He's kind of been an acquaintance of mine for a long time, but I've never really had the chance to kind of pick his brain in the way that I do in this episode. And it was really inspired by his new book that has come out, which is, I think, really focused on the single most important question investors should be asking themselves today. We get into this topic uh, and his book, The Myth of Capitalism. We also talk about his experiences, uh, you know, uh, his formative years growing up, which were absolutely unique. He grew up in Spain. Uh, His parents ran a a rehab clinic. We talk about uh, his career in finance, what inspired him to get into history and economics, how he got his job at SAC Capital, one of the most successful hedge funds on the planet and much, much more. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Tepper. Ever wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Jonathan Tepper, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm, I was really excited um, to to do this because... Um, the myth of capitalism, your new book is something, it's a, it's a topic that I've been following for a long time and I'm, and I'm eager to really get into it. You've done obviously a ton of research for the book, uh, really eager to get into that. But before we do, I, I just was reading through your bio and stuff and I followed you on Twitter for a long time and appreciate your research and all that. But, um, you know, it's fun for me to do these because I really get to start know people as more of a person, not just their kind of online profile, and I'm reading through your bio, and I think I remember reading something about this in the past, and, and, but you write in your bio, as a child, almost all my friends were heroin addicts and ex-convicts. Most were HIV positive and died of AIDS. So I just have to ask you, where the hell did you grow up? Uh, so my parents were uh, Christian missionaries. Uh, my, my mother died about five years ago, but my father still works. Um, and they started a drug rehab center in Spain in the 1980s. So my family arrived in 1983 in a neighborhood of Madrid called San Blas. And uh, at that time, it had the highest rate of drug use and juvenile crime in Europe. And uh, so my my parents started helping people in the neighborhood. And at first, we're sending them to other uh, rehab centers um, outside of Madrid. And then they realized that they needed to do something uh, themselves in Madrid. And so they started a center with one heroin addict, Raul, who was like our older brother to my four, well, there are three brothers, so four of us. And uh, Raul then brought a lot of his friends in. And so the center just kept on growing and growing. And it it really was a a unique time and and place. Uh, In the United States, uh, at at the time in the 80s, AIDS was primarily a gay disease. And in Africa, it was primarily a heterosexual disease. Um, In Spain in the 1980s, uh, AIDS was almost exclusively a a heroin uh, addict uh, disease. You know, so people transmitted it via needles. And almost all my friends 
you know, were heroin addicts that I met growing up in the neighborhood and then who went to the drug rehab. And what would often happen is they'd share needles when they were shooting up or they would end up in prison and there would be very few needles to go around and you'd have like one needle, which, you know, 200 uh, inmates would use. And that was uh, how uh, HIV virus spread. And so uh, the, the cocktail of drugs that uh, prevented, uh, you know, people from, from dying or, you know, helped blo- stop the uh, sort of terrible consequences of, of uh, HIV uh, really became widespread in the Spanish medical system in sort of 94, 95, 96 period. And so most of my friends were, were dying of AIDS essentially in the, in the 80s and early 90s. And then, you know, once the cocktail became available, um, then, you know, a lot of my friends are still HIV positive, but now you know, have, have managed to live quite a long time uh, with that. But that was really uh, when I was a kid. Uh, was just going to sort of funeral after funeral. Um, and uh, my most vivid memories are going to the hospitals with uh, my mom and dad uh, to Ramon y Cajal, which is the big um, hospital in the north of Madrid, the infectious diseases ward up on the eighth floor. Wow. I mean, I I don't I even know to where, you know, to begin with that. That's, I mean, obviously must have had a, a profound impact on you, um, you know, as a person and and especially through your kind of, development, you know, years. Um, how, how has that uh, uh, affected you? Or how did that affect your your path afterwards? Uh, yeah, so it's, what was very uh, interesting and strange is that, you know, I, I was aware of death and it meant uh, quite a lot uh, to me. But I, my, my brother, my youngest brother, Timothy, died in a car accident when I was 15. And, uh, and then, you know, the, the process of grief uh, is extraordinary. And, you know, my father and mother would read to us at the dinner table every night. That was part of our family tradition. And uh, I remember they, they were reading uh, C.S. Lewis's Grief Observed. And uh, particularly after Timothy died, it became, uh, you know, I, I felt it even more acutely um, losing friends. And I, I think it, and it's, it's strange. I've, I've read about people who've lost uh, loved one, you know, close family members uh, when, when they were in their teenage years. And I think those are particularly formative and certainly this was all happening when I was a teenager. And so I think it made me extraordinarily uh, focused. It made me, um, you know, feel that time was uh, limited and I had to do something with it. And so uh, it, it probably, and also probably made me a little antisocial in the sense that I, I felt that uh, other people wouldn't necessarily be able to relate to me or the particular experiences that I, I was having, you know, because it is a, was a rather odd childhood. Um, and so it just made me very much, you know, what people would call a nerd you know, where I I just like study nonstop and, uh, you know, then work in the drug rehab with my parents. And uh, my my brother sent me his college textbooks. And so I ended up like taking 10 advanced placement tests and um, things like that. So it just just made me extraordinarily focused and not necessarily the most well-adjusted kid socially. But, um, you know, that that really was my teenage years. Yeah, it makes you, uh, uh, I mean, i Obviously, can only imagine, but I, I, you know, that it makes you more focused. That you know, hey, I, I, you know, these people aren't fortunate enough to have what I have now, which is time here to, to, you know, do things, to expand my horizons and to make, you know, a positive impact. Which you have probably also obviously learned from your your parents too. Um, you said that kind of forced you into more of kind of a nerd type of thing. You actually were a Rhodes Scholar and studied modern history at Oxford. How does, um, 
what was it that inspired you to study history and, and be focused? Was that just a passion from a young age or was there something else behind that? Uh, sure. So I, in undergrad, I studied economics and history. So I graduated with honors in economics and highest honors in history. And so I've always been pursuing both sort of simultaneously in terms of my interests. And I was particularly interested in the intersection, which is economic history. And I remember it was my senior year at Chapel Hill when I was doing my economics thesis and my history thesis. So I was writing two at the same time. And I realized that like the further along you get in economics, the more mathematical uh, and and I would not even statistical, but the more mathematical it gets. And I realized that a lot of these models were based on assumptions. And in, in many cases, these assumptions I didn't didn't think were were true or accurate. And so I, th- I thought that economics seemed very theoretical and somewhat impractical. And I thought if I have to go to, to Oxford to study uh, on the roads, I might as well do something that I think is a bit more, more grounded in, in reality or at least, you know, it's uh, empirical. And obviously you can't test in history like you do in science, but at least like it did happen. And so I thought that, would, that might be an interesting um, sort of starting point to, to continue on, on the historical side and see, you know, rather than uh, made up models to actually just see what happened. And so that's really sort of why I decided not to go further in economics. And I realized that I can still read economic books. I can still do research. And in fact, almost all the work that I've done over the last 10 years with variant perception has been, I hope, contributing to interesting economic insights. Yeah, you know, the further I, I, the more research and things I do, and I guess the older I get, the more time I spend in the world of finance, the more I find, you know, history just becomes more and more valuable. And it was not something that I studied deeply in college or anything. But um, is there, are there any um, interesting historical parallels you see to today or any, any, uh, you know, um, books that, you, you know, you could recommend to people trying to understand the current environment? Uh, sure. So th- I, I think that there there are some historical parallels today to, to the past. Um, you know, clearly every time is, is different and there's always uh, new wrinkles on on what's going on. Um, the at, uh, at Variant Perception, one of the first books that uh, we make analysts or interns read is uh, Mania's Panics and Crashes. Um, I think that's an extremely uh, relevant, uh, book. Um, I think that you know, one book that I recommend quite a lot is, um, Bernholtz's, um, uh, monetary inflation. Um, and, uh, the, the Bernholtz book talks about essentially how, uh, funding deficits leads to, um, h- high inflation. Um, that's, uh, quite useful. So it's, uh, sorry, inflation and monetary regimes is Bernholtz's exact title. Um, I, I find very useful. Um, and, and then um, I, I think the book uh, by Reinhardt and Rogoff is extraordinary. Um, you know, certainly one of the, if you had to pick a top four or five books to read on the macro side, goes through very well. And what we've got right now going on is an enormous buildup in debt. And these things actually do take multiple years, even though traders have you know a thirty minute attention span. Um, a lot of the dynamics that we've currently got in terms of a debt buildup are going to be playing out over the next couple of years. And you can look at the U.S. deficit right now, which on a cyclically adjusted basis is uh, near extremes. And so when we go into the next downturn, uh, it'll, it'll get even worse. And so I think that a lot of these lessons uh, from the past are going to uh, come back uh, and, uh, you know, and, and be useful. And so the debt buildups that, that Rogoff talks about, I think, will uh, certainly be more and more, more relevant. And then what Bernholtz talks about, um, I think, to the extent that these very, very large deficits get, get monetized, um, you know, we will end up with higher yields and, and higher inflation, or at a minimum, uh, we'll end up with uh, low yields that are suppressed and higher inflation, which is how 
we got rid of the very large debt burden after World War II. I, you know, it's fascinating to me that, uh, you know, you're focused at, you know, variant perception on inflation. And actually, let's, let's, before we get to that, let's take a step back and, and I want to ask you about just variant perception and what actually inspired you to start it. Uh, what is it? What is your mission with, with that uh, business? Sure. So Variant, um, interestingly, was uh, almost started by accident in the sense that uh, I was working as a prop trader from 05 to 07, uh, trading rates and currencies. Before that, I had been an equity analyst at SAC Capital. So I'd done uh, equities and uh, rates and currencies. And I was really writing weeklies to try to clarify my own thoughts to find good trades. And it was sort of through that process that I found that writing – uh, helped me think more clearly uh, about uh, trades and in terms of uh, documenting evidence for what was going on. I was very worried about the subprime crisis in 06, early 07, and uh, and about the European periphery, the Spanish and the Irish banks. And so I kept on, I, I left Bank of America. Uh, I, I thought it was very big and bureaucratic, and they wouldn't let us put on a lot of the trades that we were trying to recommend. So I, I then started a uh, user-generated news website with a friend, uh, which was uh, an extraordinary amount of fun. And then we sold that to Corbis, which Bill Gates owned. Uh, but simultaneously, I kept on writing these uh, weeklies and monthlies. And I was sending them to friends that um, I had traded with, my colleagues who co-founded Variant. And we were sending these around to to a group of people, and then they were sending them around further. And I thought, this is really stupid. We're basically setting up a charity for rich hedge funds to get trading ideas. And it was sort of through that that we thought, you know what, we might as well incorporate ourselves and turn ourselves into something like uh, BCA or ISI. And, you know, worst case scenario, we've got a well-functioning, profitable research business. And best case scenario, eventually we take all these tools and start an asset management business uh, on the back of it, sort of invariant perception asset management. And so uh, we realized that like, there, there was no real downside to developing a lot of these tools further. And we really built it for ourselves, which is I thought that one of the key problems that uh, you have in research on the macro side is the focus and fixation on lagging economic indicators. So if you think about the unemployment rate or inflation, they tell you a little bit about the past. So typically, uh, you know, if you think of the real world, a, a factory boss doesn't raise wages for, for workers um, you know, just because they have a good month or two of sales. They wait until the end of the year. Then if things are going very well and there's some uh, price increases and they give workers a raise and then that happens next year. So it's, it's very lagging. It tells you about where the economy was basically about a year ago or, or a little more. And likewise with jobs, you know, if you run a real business, you don't start firing your workers just because you have a, a good month or two of sales. So the two things that the Fed targets and most of Wall Street looks at really are backward looking. And almost all recessions uh, tend to happen, you know, immediately following a, you know, decent uh, GDP prints. So GDP itself is not forward looking. The things that are forward looking are things like building permits and the yield curve and you know, other inputs that are not particularly sexy and don't make great headlines, but they actually do uh, tell you quite a lot about the future. And if you're a trader, you make money based on where things are going, not where they've been. And so uh, Variant uh, started out with, you know, written essentially a, a business plan in terms of all the tools that we wanted to build for ourselves that we would need to trade. And sure enough, over the next couple of years, uh, managed to build them all. So we have... Uh, leading economic indicators for G20 and all major emerging markets. But even more importantly, what traders make money on or not is the changes in asset prices. They don't, they don't make money directly, whether retail sales or industrial production are good or bad. So liquidity indicators are key. And the, the issue is, you know, is there more 
or, or less uh, real money or excess liquidity uh, driving asset prices. So Variant has global liquidity indicators uh, of a, you know, a variety of sorts that do a very good job of, of leading. And then those provide insights into whether, for example, China is turning up or down, whether the U.S. is going to slow down or not. And then we also have about a dozen recession models, um, all of which have different inputs and methodologies, which then go into a sort of master model. And then you know, because each recession is different and no, no two are necessarily alike, you know, where the 06, 07 was really uh, the, the beginning there was a housing related, um, the 8990 was corporate related, um, the 2001 was sort of CapEx and, and technology. So each one's different. And so you have to basically be able to have multiple inputs. You can't just have one model with a, a fixed set of inputs, um, you know, and exclusively rely on, on that and overtrain your model on the last recession. So that's really what sort of variant is what we do. And the hedge funds and family offices are our main clients. And uh, we write about across asset classes. So equities, uh, fixed income, uh, currencies, and, and commodities. And some of it's very top down, you know, like global liquidity. But a lot of it also is very bottom up in the sense that we've built uh, proprietary scores for uh, bankruptcy prediction, proprietary scores for quality, and you know stocks tend to outperform when uh, you know when they have a high quality score, and things like that. Yes, I, I'm glad you mentioned you know liquidity. I think so many people are focused on um, earnings. It just reminds me of you know the the Druckenmiller quote from I, that speech he gave at Lost Tree a few years ago. Where he says, "Don't you know earnings don't move markets? It's liquidity that moves markets. Pay attention to you know central banks, what's going on, and because that that matters far more you know to what's going to happen uh, in the future than earnings. Earnings are you know what happened last quarter. They're back backwards looking." Um, I want to take another step back. You mentioned SAC Capital. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of listeners, one of the most common questions I get from people is, I want to get into finance. I want to go work for one of these funds. Was it, was it Steve Cohen that was the, the reason? Were you a fan of his? Is that why you wanted to go work for him? How did you get the job there? Sure. So I didn't know an enormous amount about uh, Steve Cohen, but I had this group of friends in London and we've gotten together for uh, Thai dinners um, every Monday night for the last 20 years. And, you know, obviously, you know, people travel and can't go, but it's just a fantastic group of friends. And one of the guys who was there was working in London and then went over to SAC. And at the time I, I had just left Oxford and was, uh, bored working for a, a big bank. It was Lehman brothers at the time. And I just thought I need to learn. I need to you know get trained and I don't mind working for free as long as I can learn. And so I, I told him, I said, look, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to go over and be your analyst and I'll, I'll do it for free. And so I went and interviewed and, uh, you know, <laughs> they said, look, you don't have to do it for free. We'll pay you. Um, and I started at the bottom, you know, and basically for the next two years I did, I built, you know, tons of financial models, did loads and loads of, uh, channel checks. And, uh, you know, basically it was supporting, uh, the, uh, senior analysts, uh, you know, in a lot of the, the research. And at the time the internet bubble had, had burst and so people were still calling, uh, you know, the uh, sort of industrials and cyclicals and retail, essentially the old economy stocks. And so I was working in the Cohen account. Uh, I worked for uh, Gabe Marshank um, and Andy Cohen. I learned an enormous amount. Uh, and uh, basically, that was sort of the, the pool of capital that Steve uh, was running. They were working for him. And then I, I was like working below. So I probably had maybe three or four conversations in my life with Steve Cohen. Um, you know, brilliant, uh, fa fascinating guy. Uh, but I didn't have like loads of, I saw him every day, you know, in the trading floor, but I, I didn't have a, a lot of contact with him given that I was a, a junior analyst at the time. 
Yeah, I love that you say that. I mean, I think that's what I tell a lot of people, which is, is you know, this idea of being willing to go work for free in order to learn is, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of the advice I, I give people when they ask me, hey, you know, what what should I, you know, go do? I think it's so much more important to to um, have a good idea of who you want to learn from, who you want to work with, um, because, you know, that matters more than, you know, just getting into the industry or something. So the idea of, hey, pick out who, who's your favorite investor, whatever, you know, approach them and say, I will work for free. I'll do whatever to just be able to learn from you is, uh, is a great mindset um, to have. Was there one big um, takeaway from your experience there at SAC that, uh, you know, uh, fr- from your time there? Uh, well, so there were quite a lot of lessons, but I, I think if I had to come away with something, it was the fact that I worked on a variety of different industries and was building different models. I, I realized that whatever industry it is, there like a, a, you know you can build complicated models, and I did. But generally, there's a couple few uh, l- uh, limited key drivers for an industry, um, and you know once you can hone in on what those are, you, you find out they're the ones that drive the financial model. And uh, so, you know, I think that helped me realize that when you're analyzing different industries or different companies, you know, as long as you can figure out what that key thing is and then be able to track it well, um, you know, you'll, you'll you'll do a good job. Yeah, so let's let's get back to the uh, the inflation talk because you mentioned you know in a couple of those books that you recommended that uh, that's one of your focuses right now. To me, that's really interesting because I've been talking with my friend Eric Cinnamon about this for a year, and in his framework is more you know listening to three hundred conference calls, you know small cap companies every quarter, and it's something that he's been you know seeing in you know the uh, uh, you know these companies have been talking about this for about a year now. Um, I also recently talked with Ben Hunt and, you know, he's been noticing the inflation narrative, you know, through his framework, he's seeing it more come up uh, in the media and become more of a popular topic there. It's just interesting to me from those two separate disciplines, they're kind of seeing that. What is your, your I guess, framework that is, uh, that is helping you see kind of rising inflationary uh, tendencies or risks? Uh, so I, I think that you, when you talk about inflation, you can distinguish between uh, sort of headline inflation, um, and that the leads there are fairly short, and they're mainly driven by the change in oil and commodity prices, uh, the change in the dollar. And then there's uh, core inflation, where you generally get, get about sort of a 15 month to two-year lead, um, and that essentially is, is driven much more by the overall um, slack in, in the, the economy. Um, and you know, there are quite a lot of leading indicators there that work very, very well. And interestingly, so headline inflation uh, peaks generally like six to nine months, um, uh, basically after uh, sort of oil and commodities peak. Uh, and you know, unsurprisingly, the highest inflation print was the month that Lehman Brothers was going bust, and you know, the, the world was about to implode into a huge deflationary downturn. So it doesn't really tell you; it's not not at all informative about the the present state or even the future. Uh, core inflation has a much longer lead, and there's unsurprisingly, for example. Uh, core inflation bottomed in the summer of 2010. And at that stage, the global economy was actually doing quite well and bouncing back. And um, the, the trend in inflation was was up, but uh, core inflation prints were low. And that's when, uh, you know, at the end of the summer of 2010, you had the uh, Jackson Hole Conference where they uh, kicked off essentially um, uh, sort of QE2. And because it's so backward looking, um, you, you can actually forecast it pretty well. You just need to know where you were nine to 15 months earlier. 
The, the bigger question, which I think is the one that you're referring to, is the structural drivers of, of inflation. You know, whether that's going to be, you know, we had a, essentially a, a structural inflation uh, dynamic in the 1970s. And then there's been essentially a structural deflationary dynamic that was going on in the 80s, 90s, um, and and afterwards. And some of those are driven by uh, demographics in terms of people entering the prime working age um, or, or uh, exiting that uh, in the workforce. It's also driven by uh, trends in, in government finance. So what Bernholtz writes about essentially is that the, while the Fed can expand its balance sheet, if, if velocity stays low and there isn't a, an incentive to sort of lend out the uh, cash, the excess reserves, then it, it's not, not particularly inflationary. And the, the danger really is uh, when velocity does pick up and, and yields do rise, you know, then you have all this excess money sitting around. And Bernholtz points out that uh, basically if central banks are, are engaging in, in QE, you know, you're just swapping out basically cash for – uh, for, for bills or, or, or notes, and it's not particularly uh, inflationary. But when government uh, creates deficits and issues more bonds and the um, central banks buy them, that essentially is sort of new money uh, creation. And because that goes directly into the economy as the, as the government spends it. So all the periods of uh, high inflation and hyperinflation uh, globally have happened when you had uh, very, very high government deficits that were financed by central banks. And what's interesting is that uh, in, in the U.S., actually, there was fairly limited budget deficits. Um, you know, th- there was a high one in 2009 and uh, early 2010, primarily just because of the um, contraction in the economy in 08, 09. But, you know, in 2011, there was a government shutdown. The U.S. deficits were, have actually been quite modest and uh, discretionary spending is, is in fact, uh, been uh, frozen. So the U.S. didn't have a lot of the uh, dynamics at play that would lead to high inflation, which is huge deficits being financed by the central bank. Right now, we are running huge deficits, but the Fed is tightening and, and not doing QE. What will be very interesting is if in the next downturn globally, because central banks have essentially um, bloated their balance sheets and uh, taken over the debt markets, if the next downturn, if you get high fiscal spending and you know high discretionary spending coupled with QE, I think that then becomes very uh, in, inflationary. And I suspect that that's what we're going to see in the next downturn is the fiscal plus monetary, uh, which is what... Uh, leads to to high inflation, but the leading indicators that VP has point to uh, slightly higher inflation, which is typical, as you see in a late cycle scenario, where you know you have record low unemployment rates and uh, high quit rates, and uh, you know the, the a lot, and then you know we've had relatively high ISM. All these point to sort of higher um, core inflation. Well, I, I absolutely appreciate. That perspective, because I think so many people are still focused on, you know, demographics equal deflation. And so they, they're kind of ignoring some of these other dynamics that are at work. Um, like, you know, the monetary authorities, um, having to potentially take a backseat to, you know, fiscal domination for the first time in a long time. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to, um, ask you about, uh, in terms of that, um, inflationary dynamic from a demographic standpoint, because, you know, you hear this all the time, demographics are destiny and demographics, you know, in, in the minds of these people saying this is that, uh, you know, demographics equal deflation. 
Um, is is that when you were talking about demographics? Is that is that how you were referring to it? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the, if you're looking at um, when people are almost everyone's entering the the workforce, and you had essentially that the peak and the baby boom. Uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, that really did, was tied to you know, much higher inflation. As people get old, obviously, they, they spend less um, and there's uh, less uh, aggregate demand. What's fascinating is I sent an, an email to uh, Bernholtz, who's very kind and replied. Um, you know, I, I uh, should have figured out you know, that he's been around for quite a while. I asked if he wanted to come to London and speak to some investors. And he said he was in his 80s and didn't travel very much. And he, he lives in Switzerland, where he's been an economics professor. But um, uh, we were uh, trading emails because I was asking about Japan. And uh, Japan is the only country right now that does fit his criteria for uh, high inflations and, and hyperinflation, which is you know extremely large budget deficits that are financed by the central bank. And so I said, you know, have you found uh, false positives in your research where countries fit your criteria but didn't have high inflation? And he said no. You know, so uh, which I thought was very interesting. And I said, well, how do you explain Japan right now? And he said it's, it's very difficult. He said the only thing I, uh, I can assume is that this is this is tied to the demographic situation in the sense that we've never actually seen a country. Um, you know, where everyone is getting old and, you know, you might be able to, to pump more money in um, in terms of the monetary base, but it, it doesn't necessarily um, lead to higher uh, inflation. So I think that because we haven't really seen society's age before, we haven't seen uh, populations decline. I, I, we don't really have a history to tell us what's going to happen. And, you know, I think that that is uh, absolutely fascinating. You know, earlier we were talking about reading history to learn. Um, that there isn't really anything that we can uh, read about uh, in this regard in terms of how the demographic dynamics, uh, you know, what, what, what does an aging population mean towards uh, inflation? I suspect that it's, it, it doesn't mean that you can't get inflation. I just think it probably makes it harder. Yeah, and, I, and I, I seem to recall, I can't recall right off the, the top of my head exactly the title of it or anything, but I think the IMF put out something um, a few months ago, maybe a year ago, that showed um, in most countries, uh, demographics are tied to inflation in just the exact opposite dynamic that you would um, assume. That as populations age, actually inflation goes up. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It, it seems to me that there's this, this idea that people spend less uh, in old age. Yes, it, you know, by a lot of respects. Yeah, they're not going to buy fancy cars. They're going to downscale the house. But, you know, they do have to spend on, you know, health care and these types of things. And so, especially here in the U.S., healthcare is so expensive <laughs> relative to the rest of the world that it seems to me spending could actually go up uh, in an aging society here. But um, well, you know, that's probably a topic. Go ahead. No, absolutely. There, there has been uh, differing studies, and, and I've got both, uh, you know, or studies from both directions, um, you know, where the, the IMF did write that actually you would see, uh, you know, an increase in inflation um, and wages, given that there you'd have to bid up uh, for the labor of the fewer workers that were around. Um, so, uh, I, I, you know, and this gets back to the, the problem in economics in terms of, you know, you can have lots of models and change the assumptions and uh, you'll end up with, with different results. So I, I don't think that there, it, it's not an open and shut case in terms of what happens with inflation with an aging society is I've, I've seen models and projections uh, saying the opposite. 
Well, yeah, and then, then you combine that that uh, dynamic of you know a shortage of workers from a demo, you know demographic standpoint that pushes up wages. Combine that with um, another dynamic that we're seeing, which is the, the tendency towards nationalism and deglobalization. And I think it's pretty obvious globalization was one of the strongest you know disinflationary phenomenons we've seen in the past several decades. That you know deglobalization would have the exact opposite effect, which is you know. Um, shrinking the you know supply of labor uh in in a certain respect that you combine that with a uh you know demographic trend and you know shrinking the supply of labor it could be you know both of those things working to towards a higher structural inflationary dynamic uh, uh, absolutely yeah let's uh let's get to the the book so you know i mean obviously you're just talking about some of these topics that uh you know this myth of the the myth of capitalism had to be something that you were paying attention to. What what was it specifically that inspired you to dig deep enough into this to actually write a book about it? There were two uh, main uh, factors, not, not directly related at first. Uh, one was I was uh, having arguments, uh, you know, fr- very friendly discussions over beers with uh, friends in London when Piketty's book came out. And my friends were saying, well, capitalism itself has a fatal flaw and this is extraordinary. You know, they've, they've now found it. You know, it's low growth leads to high returns on capital. And I was arguing saying, well, this this makes no sense at all. If you have, you know, uh, very high profits, I'm going to want to go after those profits. I'll go in and I'll compete with you and I'll you know, take away some of your profits. And so uh, Jeremy Grantham said that profit margins are the most mean reverting series in finance. And if profit margins don't mean revert, then something's seriously wrong. And, you know, at, at the same time, I've you know, been following on, on Twitter and, and blogs, you know, people often talk about whether profit margins will go down or not. What does this mean for investing? You know, clearly, historically, there's been a very high degree of mean reversion. And the, the most dangerous words in the English language, uh, you know, are this time is different. And I started to think, well, is this time different and will we see some mean reversion or have we seen a structural change in the economy? At the same time, as I was mulling over these ideas, uh, I mentioned that variant perception has leading indicators for inflation and growth. One of the leading indicators that we have is for U.S. wages and it has inputs that are very intuitive and that make sense. You know, so for example, if you want to forecast wages, one of the inputs you use is the quit rate. If people are leaving their jobs, it's telling you that they're going to jobs that are more highly paid. Generally, they don't tend to leave their job for a less highly paid one. And so you can take some of these inputs, plug them in, and it gives you a pretty good 15 to 21 month lead on, on U.S. wages. And for the last sort of, you know, eight or nine years, uh, the the indicator had been turning up and we haven't really seen almost any increase in wages. And so I started thinking like, well, maybe our indicator's broken, you know, but it doesn't, it shouldn't be broken because the inputs make sense. And, and then I started realizing the more research I was doing is that these two factors are, are interrelated, which is that over the last 40 years, what we've seen is merger wave after merger wave. And if you think about it as like the NCAA sweet 16, you know, you start out with 16 and then you go down to eight and then four. And so what's happened in many industries is you've, you've got fewer and fewer players. You've got uh, fewer companies competing for workers. And at the same time, uh, you know, going back about 50 years, you've essentially had a decline in unionization in the United States. So companies have become more concentrated and there are fewer of them. And at the same time, workers have become dispersed and are, are not 
uh, collectively represented or, or bargaining. And uh, when you put those together, you know, it clearly means that workers are going to be losing out in terms of uh, wage dynamics. So the, the real question, I think, for investors is, you know, are, are there a superior class of companies now that are in dominant positions and are these profit margins sustainable? Uh, if the answer is yes, then you, you, they might be justified in having higher PE multiples. And, it, you know, it then means that this uh, cyclical, uh, you know, uh, mean reversion that's going on might be more muted. You know, we're not going to get rid of cycles, certainly, but we, you might see, a, you know, a, a less mean reversion than we did in the past. And so that, that was really how I got into the subject. It was purely from like a research standpoint without an axe to grind, just trying to find answers. Yeah, no, that is, that is. Yeah, that's that's fantastic because to me, I think this is absolutely the most important question that investors should be asking themselves. Are profit margins sustainable? Because everybody looks at the price to earnings ratio and goes, oh, you know, we're only 22 times earnings. That's not crazy, especially, you know, based on the last 20 years average. I mean, back throughout, uh, you know, longer period of time, we're on, we're definitely on the high side. But I think 99% of people who talk about the price to earnings ratio don't realize that the uh, it's you know the earnings number is built on the highest profit margins in history, and so if you if you're using the, pri- the the price to earnings ratio to justify buying stocks, that means you're assuming profit margins are going to remain this high indefinitely into the future. So to me, there's that embedded assumption that people are making without even realizing it. So uh, yeah, it's fascinating to me. So so let's actually let's dig into this. Um, what so you know you 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 found that. Uh, concentration has has been uh, uh, really responsible for these rising profit margins. Is that is that kind of the the, the thesis there? Uh, yes. Yeah. So w- w- when I started digging into uh, the the changes in the U.S. economy, one of the best papers that I ran across was a paper by Gustavo Grullón. He's a professor at Rice University, and his uh, last name is uh, G R U L L O N Grullón. And it, the the title of his paper is you know are U.S. industries becoming more concentrated? And the what he shows is that the industrial concentration has risen substantially over the last twenty years. And then he looks at it, the profitability, and he looks at whether buying these companies or not uh, would have made uh, you know would have beaten the market. And what's very interesting is he shows a couple things. One that the high return on that these companies have higher return on assets. That, that the return on assets does not come because they're more efficient. It comes because they have greater pricing power. And uh, in, the, in the book, I discuss Buffett and the idea of pricing power. But what really happens is that these very large companies end up with a significant amount of market power. They have market power over the consumer in the sense that they can raise prices. They tend to have pow- market power over the suppliers in the sense that they can demand lower input costs. Um, and then more controversially, which people are starting to focus on now, is that they actually do have market power over workers in terms of wages. Um, and so when you put all those three together, that's one of the things that explains why uh, many companies actually are getting higher earnings and higher uh, re- return on assets. So the, so the, you know, this really gets to what the, what the myth is in, in the book's titles. The myth is that we actually live in a free market economy where there's a balance between you know, corporate power versus worker power. And that's just not the case today. 
Uh, yes, it's quite interesting. The, the, the idea of the, of the myth comes from the fact that people think that they live in an unbridled capitalist system and what, you know, what we're living in uh, has all the elements of capitalism. But as I point out, uh, capitalism involves one, uh, private property, which we do have, and two, it involves competition you know, to end up with clear uh, pricing signals which induce the right amounts of supply and demand. And that, unfortunately, the competition side is being eroded uh, in terms of having less and less competition. And I go... Uh, I look at dozens of industries where the number of players have gone down, where the levels of concentration has gone up. And uh, so I, to, to describe the current markets as being competitive and capitalist in that sense is a myth. And that's really where the title comes from. And and so it's not necessarily like the old, you know, uh, monopolies, you know, that we would think of. Um, it's more of kind of a duopolies and oligopolies that are that are that are essentially um cornering their their sectors um these days uh, yeah so there's a, a very interesting uh discussion there and part of it is it, it, monopolies are pretty widely perceived to be bad and so you know most people tend to agree on that what people then don't discuss is the next step, which is, you know, are duopolies and oligopolies bad? Some people say, well, you know, these companies are highly competitive. And if you have four companies in an industry, they're just going to fight it out. And, uh, you know, that, that's a, a pretty good situation. But what I discuss in the book is that there's a – if you look at, like, game theory and you look at tacit collusion and you look at price fixing, and I go into great detail on, on these – uh, you, you can see that, uh, in fact, highly concentrated industries end up playing repeated games with each other, you know, in terms of game theory, where they have every incentive to collude and to cooperate. And so there are loads and loads of cases of price fixing, uh, loads of cases where they communicate with each other. Uh, you, you can do that via conference calls where you tell your investors, you know, how much you plan in terms of uh, expanding your own capacity so your competitors know that you're not going to overexpand, so they don't overexpand. And th that means that an oligopoly situation, in fact, is not highly competitive, and that's exactly what we've seen. So when you get down below six players in an industry, there's quite a lot of research that shows that prices go up in almost all cases. So uh, that explains why Americans pay a lot more than Europeans do when it comes for to um, cell phones, to cable, and then the American healthcare system I spend quite a lot, a lot of time on. Because Americans think that the Europeans have this horrible monopoly of a state-run system like the uh, British NHS or the Spanish national system. And they think Americans have this sort of rugged, free capitalist uh, you know, uh, market in healthcare when, in fact, the U.S. has the worst of both worlds where you have extensive regulation and government involvement. And you have private companies, essentially, that are able to use that regulation to keep out competitors and then extract enormously high rents. Yeah, I want to I want to talk more about that specifically, but you know the regulation side of things. But I, I also want to come back to the game theory side of it too, because you know I, th I think it's it's actually pretty simple for people to understand. You know, through like a Nash equilibrium or something. You know, when when uh, you know uh, I, I just think of the movie, you know, Beautiful Mind, when they're trying to. And I think you actually mentioned this in in the book. Um, you know. I do. Uh, yeah, why don't you, why don't you uh, explain that? Uh, absolutely. So the, the key book that uh, readers uh, should, should read if they are, are curious, and I, I mentioned in the book, is uh, a book by Robert Axelrod called uh, On Cooperation. And 
basically what's what's very interesting is the in game theory the uh canonical example is the prisoner's dilemma and so let's say you and i were both deciding to rob a store right and uh the, the police apprehend us and then they they interview you separately in one cell and me separately in another and the ideal scenario from our standpoint is you don't rat on me and I don't rat on you, right? And ideally, we both get off. Um, and the, the worst scenario is obviously where you rat on me and I rat on you, and then we're, we're both going to jail and neither gets the benefit of ratting. Um, and and then there's also the uncertainty, which is, will I rat on you while you don't rat on me, right? Or will the other way, way work, you know, will, will it be reversed? And so what happens is if, if you play a game once, um, you might have a very strong incentive to rat on your friend um, and get a better deal for yourself. Um, so if you think about markets, you know, if you're just playing one game, you might think, you know what, like we're going to have a little price war here and compete with uh, the other company and try to steal some market share. And, and, and that's essentially sort of defecting. Um, but what you find is if you play the prisoner's dilemma game over and over again, um, and Robert Axelrod in this book, he set up essentially a prisoner's dilemma game that ec- economists, computer scientists, and uh, mathematicians could submit programs, and then they would all play with each other, you know, over hundreds of times. And then, and every strategy would play with every other strategy. And the idea was to find out what's the dominant strategy. Is it, is it to, um, you know. Uh, basically always defect or to defect uh, only when the other guy's cooperating and you've lulled them into a false sense of security. The the answer really, the dominant strategy is to essentially tit for tat. It's to always cooperate, meaning if the other person's not cooperating, you don't cooperate. If the other person cooperates, you cooperate. So basically you're just mirroring. And what he found out is that cooperation emerges as the dominant strategy. And you see this in business where the dominant strategy for oligopolies and duopolies is essentially cooperation. It's uh, collusion or whether it's tacit or explicit, but it's like you don't want to engage in price wars. And um, the, the, the Minimax uh, theory was uh, promoted by John von Neumann. And you know the example he gave essentially was if a mother has two children and she gives them a piece of cake and gets one uh, to cut it uh, and the other to pick the piece, you're going to end up with the most even uh, cake cutting you've ever seen. And uh, the, the, the reason why that's the case is that what people are trying to do is to minimize their maximum loss. And so price wars and gaining market share sounds wonderful, except that what uh, competitors really want to do in the long term is minimize their maximum loss. And so therefore, they, they don't really want to uh, have extensive competition in the industry. And you end up with uh, companies essentially uh, cooperating. And I go through dozens and dozens of, of examples and uh, studies uh, indicating this. And, you know, we, it doesn't matter what industry you're looking at. Like, you know, recently there was a case of tuna in the U.S. and it was Walmart and other grocers that brought the case that there was collusion in the tuna market. But, you know, you've seen uh, collusion in the Canadian bread market. It doesn't matter where you look. You find that companies generally try not to compete if they can avoid it. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because over the summer I read a book called Thinking Strategically. It's kind of just a basic introduction to game theory. And, uh, you know, the subtitle is uh, The Competitive Edge in Business Politics in Everyday Life. And most of the examples they use are companies using game theory to figure out how to they can best um, you know, protect their margins. And it was interesting to me because I just wanted to understand game theory better. But all the examples they use are in business. So it's, I mean, it's pretty, and this book came out in 93. It's one of the most popular books, you know, related to game theory. So it's pretty obvious that, you know, corporate executives have been reading this stuff and paying closer attention to it. So they're not, uh, 
you know, making these mistakes that, uh, you know, that, that they've made in the past. But um, I also want to come back to this topic, too, of, you know, regulatory capture, because that's also another important dynamic that's going on. Absolutely. So regulatory capture is the, the idea that uh, very large companies that are regulated by an entity. So in the case, for example, of Comcast and FTC, sorry, FCC, um, or, uh, you know, you, you have uh, other companies that might want to merge and like Google, for example, might want to capture the FTC, which uh, enforces antitrust. The, the idea is that these uh, entities are initially set up to uh, rein in large companies and oligarchs. Uh, and you, you, you've had, for example, like um, the Interstate Commerce Commission, the ICC regulating railroads, which was uh, set up in the late 19th century. And the, essentially what happens is that the ICC uh, became very friendly with the railroads themselves. So while initially the ICC was meant to go after the railroads and to look after the little guy, uh, over time, the the regulator and regulated uh, companies get very close, they get very cozy, uh, and then you essentially end up with a revolving door where when people leave uh, the FCC, FTC, they end up going to work for uh, Washington law firms that then represent the companies that were regulated. And then every four to eight years, you end up with a change in administration and then people go back. So it's a revolving door in both directions. And you often have, you know, people who've been in and out of government for the last 30 or 40 years, um, you know, basically regulating companies that they previously uh, worked for or represented. Now, in some cases, they recuse themselves. In other cases, they don't. And what, what that means is that these regulators aren't looking out for the little guy necessarily. What they're doing is looking out for former clients. And their very mindset is such that they tend to fully uh, sort of have taken on board the doctrines uh, in the case of antitrust of consumer welfare, which is all mergers are good because all mergers lead to an enhancement and efficiency and lower prices and therefore, you know, don't rock the boat. And, and that's really sort of what you see. Um, and I go through quite a lot of examples in, in the book. Um, and I'm, I'm probably going to do a follow-up uh, piece, uh, you know, which will appear uh, in the American conservative on uh, re regulatory capture, but it's, it, it's absolutely jaw-dropping when you consider the, the revolving door where people work for Google, then go and work in the, the White House, and then leave the White House, go work for Google. And that's just one example. There are many other companies, you know, companies that uh, approve mergers end up going to work for the companies whose merger they approved, or you have patent examiners who end up working for the companies whose, whose patents they've approved. Um, and clearly, these, this is the corruption uh, of markets and the corruption of capitalism when you have the government intervening actively on the side of, of, of the big against the small. Yeah, and, and there's, there's another uh, factor also that I, I think you touch on also in the book, which is, um, you know, that the, in, there's an interest rate factor also, too, that... Uh, you know, low interest rates also allow companies to, to, um, I guess, uh, consolidate a, a little easier than they would during high interest rate periods. Um, that, you, would you care to explain it, that? Absolutely. So that was one of the very unexpected things I found in the book. I, I did not at all want to really be addressing monetary policy or fiscal policy. I think I've done that in the past uh, with Endgame and uh, Code Red. And so th that really wasn't at all what I was interested in. And as I was looking through the research on collusion and uh, cooperation, uh, I, I was trying to find research as to sort of, you know, 
how and why does this happen? And it's fascinating that one of the key studies um, that, that I, I cite in the book showed that the real level of interest is one of the key determiners in the uh, rise and fall of, of collusion um, and cartels. And so I think the, so the, the reason that they offer in, is essentially that there's, there's a huge cost in being patient and waiting to see what your competitor is going to do, right? And that involves uncertainty. And so when real rates are very high, firms tend to be impatient and don't really want to sit around and, and, and wait and watch to see whether there's going to be cooperation or not. But when real rates are very, very low and negative, then you know, they, firms can afford to be fairly patient because the opportunity cost is, is quite low. And so the research paper pointed out that essentially it was um, you know, monotonic or almost perfect in terms of the correlation between the rise and fall of cartels and, and real rates. So to the extent that we've been in a negative real rate environment, you know, very, very low rates, uh, that certainly has encouraged uh, firms to be patient and, and cooperate. So there's, there, I mean, obviously several dynamics all kind of conspiring to boost profit margins. Um, you know, it reminds me of, you know, back in, in 99, you know, actually when Buffett wrote in Fortune magazine, kind of is, this is warning that the dot com mania was, was out of control. He addressed profit margins back then, um, saying or writing that, uh, in my opinion, you have to be wildly optimistic to believe corporate profits as a percent of GDP can for any sustained period hold much above 6%. One thing keeping the percentage down will be competition, which is alive and well. Obviously, we haven't seen that since 1999. Uh, in addition, there's a public policy point. If corporate investors in aggregate are going to eat an ever-growing portion of the American economic pie, some other group will have to settle, settle for a smaller portion. That would justifiably raise political problems. And in my view, a major reslicing of the pie just isn't going to happen. Um, and we've actually, but we've, this is actually the reslicing that we've seen. Profit margins have gone higher and it's been sustained higher since that time. Um, how do you see this kind of, uh, uh, working itself out? I mean, do you, do you see them as sustainable now or do you see, um, uh, you know, this, this, I guess what it comes back to in this quote that I'm referring to is, will workers continue to settle for a smaller portion? Because that's where I really think it comes back to. So I, I think that uh, we're already seeing uh, a rise of populist movements in the United States uh, and elsewhere. If you look at the uh, election of, of Trump, that campaign, uh, Trump throughout the campaign was saying that he thought that markets were rigged. Bernie Sanders was saying the same thing. Uh, at about the same time, you had Jeremy Corbyn in the UK who kept on saying that the economy was rigged. Clearly, the way to get elected it, it, as outsiders, where Trump wasn't truly a Republican, he never really participated in the Republican Party. Uh, Sanders was a socialist, uh, essentially, who joined the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, Corbyn was like in the far left of the Labor Party in the UK. Clearly, people want an outsider. They want someone who is telling them that the system is rigged. And I think that the rise in populism that we're seeing in third-party uh, you know, politics and is, is happening in industrialized countries where workers are, are, are losing out. And so I think that it is contributing to, to change. Um, it, you know, I, I think that it will probably grow larger. Uh, you know, Well-informed sources uh, have told me that this is going to you know, antitrust, essentially monopolies, and the in industrial concentration is going to be one of the key themes for uh, the election in 2020 in terms of particularly the, on the Democratic side. 
And my own view is that it's necessary, and I don't think it's a left or right issue. And I think that if people generally do care about uh, capitalism and free markets, the best thing to do is to have uh, capitalists themselves reform it if they don't want to have uh, people who don't believe in markets uh, change them and reform them. So uh, Edmund Burke, uh, in his uh, Thoughts on the Revolution in France, pointed out that if you don't reform, uh, conservation is not possible. So there's nothing more conservative than reform. And the French uh, monarchy uh, did not reform itself at all, and therefore ended up with a revolution in France, which uh, ended the monarchy itself. And so I think that one of the key ideas of conservatism essentially is the the need for uh, gradual and necessary reform. And I hope that's achieved by people who do care about capitalism and free markets. It seems to me that it's inevitable, you know, just we go through cycles where, you know, um, capital dominates and then labor dominates and it, you know, just kind of goes back and forth. And we're just kind of, I, I think we're near one of those, one of those turning points and reading your book was really kind of, uh, you know, enlightening for me to, to see a lot of the dynamics that, uh, I kind of sensed were out there, but didn't really have a great handle on them. And it's, it's, it's very well done. Um, so if, if we, if you see an environment, you know, that where we have potentially, uh, reverting profit margins um, over a, a you know period of time, plus structurally rising inflationary um, risks. What what is how how do you see this world as an investor? I mean, how do you what, what are some of the themes that you, you you draw from that on the investing side? Uh, sure. So I I do think that uh, people tend to overpay for earnings with high multiples on uh, peak margins. Um, I, I don't, well, I don't think that the U.S. is about to head into recession. Um, I think that uh, global indicators have certainly been turning down, uh, and many countries uh, do have negative leading indicators. U.S. leading indicators have been rolling over but are still positive. And it, it, I think it's much more likely a matter of when, not if, uh, you, you end up with a, a downturn in the United States. And I'm very agnostic and will rely on the leading indicators that Marriott Perception has. But uh, for, for for many stocks, obviously, they're still uh, pricing in uh you know, a very long period of high high profits with you know peak margins, and so um, I, I think that uh, there there are many equities that are are overvalued. You could argue that the cyclical sell off we've seen already has certainly put a dent in some of the cyclical names, um, but you know the when things do turn down, uh, equities are relatively overvalued. I think that. Bonds catch bid in a downturn, so uh, clearly the, the long end in the U.S. Uh, is attractive uh, when a slowdown emerges. But getting back to the structural point, um, the ref- the tax reform that we've seen over the last year uh, is good, on a structural basis is blowing a huge uh, hole in, in terms of the, the budget deficit. And to the extent that these persist and are, and are, are monetized, um, I think that we're looking at a, a higher trend in uh, in, in inflation uh, where. Or not, and sorry, and yields. You know where where people will have to. Uh, you know the, the supply will be such that people will demand higher yields in order to um, take down the supply in, in in bonds that's coming from a uh, a large and, and growing uh, budget deficit. So um, th- those are some of the the key considerations. Um, and obviously, we, you know, I, I look at a lot of the indicators that we have in terms of telling us you know when you should be preferring cyclicals versus defensives. And VP has been essentially uh, sort of long defensive, short cyclicals most of the year due to uh, some of the dangers that we were seeing in terms of uh, high oil, high yields, and uh, slowing global growth. Got it. I, I want to um, 
we, we you know I've, I've taken up a ton of your time already i want to ask you something more of kind of on a, a personal note but it still comes back to the investing side of things i think i've said this on the podcast before will, will you in your bio mention that you're a fan of jazz and I, i've been a fan of jazz for a long time not not a huge fan but I, there's a miles davis quote that i've mentioned on this podcast before it's one of my favorites and i think because it has direct parallel to investing um, he said, music is the space between the notes. It's not the notes you play, it's the notes you don't play. And I think that that has so relevant to investing. It's the trades you don't take, right? It's it's being able to not trade and avoid making mistakes when you feel like you're you're forced into trading when it, when there's not a great opportunity out there. Is there something in jazz or some other, you know, hobby or something where you see distinct parallels to investing or economics? Uh, well, it's quite interesting. Uh, I used to play the trumpet. Uh, I, I love jazz. Uh, Winston Marsalis is one of my my heroes, um, and uh, the, he he compared uh, jazz musicians to uh, Baroque musicians. Uh, in the Baroque period, you had the the bass line that was laid down that was the, the basso continuo, and then the players essentially would improvise over it and often compete to see who could do the most uh, interesting in, uh, improvisation. And jazz is very much the same, where you have essentially sort of the uh, the, the, the base is laid down and, and then people improvise on top. And I think that markets are, are, are similar in, in many ways. Uh, you know, history uh, doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And what you really are doing is trying to figure out you know, sort of what the beat is and then improvise over it. And I think that you, know, you, you have to master the, the basics and then be willing to uh, essentially improvise and adapt. Uh, and so that's one reason why I, I love, love jazz, and I think it does apply. Um, you know, you have to pretty open, have to master all the basics and be open minded to change. I love that. All right, what what key are we in? What's the tempo? Okay, right. If you don't you don't have the key right, you don't have the tempo right. You're not going to sound very good. Exactly. That's a great point. Well, we are out of time, but I highly recommend everybody go get uh, Jonathan's new book, The Myth of Capitalism, at Amazon. Follow him on Twitter at jtepper2. And check out VariantPerception.com. His research service just provides a ton of value. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. That was fantastic. My pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and charts related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.